Good evening. Welcome to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Enter freely and of your own will. In this episode, you may find many strange things, for the films to be discussed are old, and they have many memories. So, be there. Be there. Greetings, guys. Welcome to the Borga Pass Horror Podcast. As always, from Boston, this is Scott. And this is Jim from L.A. And joining us today, very, very special guest, uh, universal historian, documentarian, writer, lord and savior of uh, anyone that loves horror, especially universal, <laughs> Mr. Greg Mank. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Very, very good to be with you both. Great to have you. And, you know, yeah. Jim and I started this podcast, you know, earlier this year. And, you know, obviously it's such a pleasure for us to find, you know, not only like-minded fans, but connect with, you know, the folks that have been, you know, kind of holding the the mantle for, for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And um, again, just Jim and I are just such huge fans of your work, Greg, and, you know, through your, your books and uh, documentaries, the whole thing. So I don't want to embarrass you and fawn over you too, too much, but like just such, right. such, such a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> But truly, it's such such a pleasure, and um, I mean, we just have the utmost respect for your work. Thank you. So let's get into it. So specifically, um, kind of open it up. But originally, we were going to first. You know, I reached out to uh, Greg about coming on Borgo to do a, an episode. Typically, as you know, we do um, more movie reviews. So kind of throwing out a few ideas and. Um, you know, one thing in the back of my mind, a film I always wanted to cover, and maybe we will at some point, you know, Greg, if you're interested, like Frankenstein uh, meets the Wolfman. Just there's so many, so many nooks and crannies with that movie. And oh like, yeah, like you get, you know, you get, you get your time with, you know, an hour or two with with Greg Mike. You want to spend it the best way that you can. So mm. um, left it up to to Greg, and you and you brought up the idea that you wanted to get into to Colin Clive. Yeah, and one of the reasons uh, was because, of course, you know, the book that had come out. The, the biography of him that I had written recently, uh, but also because he really is uh, of, of all the great horror stars. Uh, he's sort of largely forgotten. I mean, maybe not within our community uh, of the people who really, you know, love and respect these films. They, of course, revere him and appreciate him. But, um, you know, in, in, in the mainstream, he's he's so forgotten. It, it, it was, it's interesting that over the years, um, researching him for different projects, that some years ago, um, uh, another colleague and I decided to go up and find the last home where he lived in Hollywood. And it was way, way up in the hills. And um, we went up there late one day. And um, I decided to try to get a good bird's eye picture of it. There was a hill across from the house. And uh, so uh, my friend and I made our way you know, around and up the steep hill and got up to the top and, and uh, got my picture and you know, kind of standing up there thinking, wow, that was Colin Clive's house and being, being typical fanboy stuff. And all of a sudden I lost my balance and I just slid right down that <laughs> hill, right down into the street. And uh, <laughs> the, the friend I was with, who's from California, knows the area, uh, came running down the side of the hill. And he said, uh, he said, you know, I was really worried about you sliding down the hill, not just because you were sliding down a very steep hill, but because he said uh, you were sliding over what I think were rattlesnake nests uh, as you <laughs> were, were, were down there. Uh, so uh, that was, uh, you know, the woman who lived in that house, as it turned out, had never heard of Colin Clive. Oh, wow. uh, so when I spoke to her, you know, and very politely asked her about, you know, about, about it, she said, no, she'd never heard of him. Who was he? And, you know, they get the usual response. Who? Calvin Klein? No, no, Colin Klein. You know, <laughs> right. 
that kind of thing. Uh, on another occasion, I was in London and um, with uh, working on this book and um, uh, found the home where we lived in the early 1930s in London, uh, on in, in lovely town home. And um, there was a house across the street. It was an office building. I ran across the street and said, you know, could I go up on the third floor uh, and get a picture out your window of the house across the street? And of course, you know how the Brits are. They're great. You know, they're very hospitable. Yeah. Oh, of course, you know, if I had you silly yank, go to wherever, whatever you want to do. So, uh, so I went up there and, you know, I'm up there on the third floor, you know, hanging out the window with my disposable camera at that time, you know, trying to get a good picture of this. And uh, this, this lovely girl comes walking down the other side of the street and sees me, you know, dangling out the window with a camera, you know, angled in her direction. And again, you know, the Brits, she just looked up and waved and smiled and, you know, posed for the picture. <laughs> I should really break it to her. I'm really not trying to take her picture, you know. But again, the, the, whenever this kind of thing would happen, the people associated with the situation would say, Colin, who? And of course, it's probably not surprising when I mean, he's been gone so many years, 1937, yeah. and um, left behind a fairly small body of work and, and so on and so forth. So obviously, when, um, as you can tell by how I'm running off at the mouth here, uh, when you get somebody who wants to talk about Cullen Clive, you know, it's it's wonderful. It's yeah. I'm, I'm all yeah. there. So. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, uh, he, he really was. He was a, a terrific actor and a very, very uh, interesting and, and fine and, and tragic man. Definitely. We'll certainly get into it now. And Greg, you had mentioned, so, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, Greg released his book, One Man Crazy, The Life and Death of Colin Clive. And, you know, Jim and I have been lucky enough to, you know, read it. I'm actually going through my, my second time now. And some of the photos that um, Greg is mentioning and those rooftop photos and, you know, dangling out the windows are all in this book. And they're just, they're fantastic. Um, you know, just to, you know, see where this man lived and just the, the varying degrees of you know, the homes are just so, um, this is beautiful to look at and just, just such a moment in time. Um, but just, it was such a fun, fun book. And I, I learned so much. I thought I knew, you know, quite a bit about the man, but just, you know, he, and we'll get into it as we're, you know, yeah. we're wrapping here, but, um, I mean, certainly his early life and just, you know, the strifes and the struggles of this man, um, and certainly want to get your, your take. And, you know, obviously you, you, Jim too, you know, the man, it's almost like the man before Hollywood and the man after Hollywood, you know, would yeah. love to get your opinions there. Yeah. It, well, it's neat. Like, it's like Colin Clive's life and career at a point we've so in and out of the formation of what we think of as classic horror you know it, i mean he's there right at the moment obviously um you know he's working on journey's end they're doing dracula everything um and then you know he, he interweaves out and he's so close to certain projects and but for the you know grace of god he's the invisible man or he's you know you know tied into all these other things and then jumps over to MGM and does mad love so you know he's he's in this other you know he's in he's in maybe one of the most famous of if not the most famous classic horror film of all time Frankenstein and he's also in one of the most infamous ones too from that that original cycle of the 30s which is really interesting so he kind of bookends maybe that first like if we want to call it the 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 golden golden age of classic horror into before you know the 40s and the silver age of classic horror and you know everything like that so it was a fascinating read Greg it was, it was really interesting and I, I learned an incredible amount of stuff that I never knew or, or thought about and it informed how I look at that era 
you know, I live in LA and I think of, I think of Hollywood as a certain thing. And, you know, that, that I've known since I've been here and since 2005. And I don't think of it as this little village that it was at the time where yeah. it, it's like, you know, and they say everyone in LA, everyone in the business knows each other. And that is still true. But I think back then everyone really did know each other because it was such a small community, right? Yes, very much so. Uh, it, it really was. Everybody really knew everybody else's uh, professional business and in many cases, their, their private business. Yes. Uh, and of course, it, it was such a, a, an unusual place at the time. And that's one of the, the, the strange things about, about Colin Klaus' life was that yeah, even though he only lived 37 years, uh, the world into which he was born was so different in so many ways from the world in which he died. Hmm. He was born, you know, Queen Victoria was still Queen of England, you know, when, when he was born. Um, and, and he, you know, came from this, this long line of, of uh, ancestors uh, who were all, you know, pillars of the British military, had served with great distinction in India. On his mother's side, uh, one of her ancestors was supposed to have been the great Clive of India. Uh, that's generally been somewhat debunked, but he grew up believing it, all right, at the time that that was the case. You know, the the, the family was was very much a god in country. You know, they were a Roman Catholic family in England. Uh, and, and so everything was 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 you know, duty and, and, and devotion. And, uh, and, of course, his great dream was to be a Bengal lancer, uh, you know, which was really probably the most exotic branch of the military service. Uh, in India and, and wanted all this. And as it turned out, for a variety of reasons, instead of being a part of that world, he ended up, part of, ended up being a part of the theater world and a part of the film world and ended up being in Hollywood. Uh, and um, I think it was very, very hard for him to kind of bring the two together, uh, to exist in those two different worlds. You know, it, it was really quite a journey. It was a short life, but it was an incredible journey from one point in history to in one place to another in a completely different type of place. Yeah. And a very different type of life uh, that, that he found himself living. You know, it's 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 very very sad uh, that you know a number of the things that that affected him later, um, you know, happened early in his life. Um, he had uh, you know a very scarred uh, childhood uh, for situations to dealing with his mother, which uh, long story. So so he he had a, a difficult time uh, growing up. Um, he had a, a fear of um, insanity in his family, or what they called in those days, lunacy. Uh, and as it turned out, he had a, a, a valid reason for, for having that fear, which was, was terribly frightening to him. Uh, uh, neither he nor his two uh, sisters ever had any children uh, because they kind of feared this, this yeah. lunacy um, aspect hanging over the family, which was a, a great torment to him. Um, and of course, uh, by the end of his life, he had a very sadly, a severe addiction. So um, it, it was. It was a very uh, a life of a, a lot of torment. He was. He was frightened of a lot of things, and it, so it was somewhat ironic that he ended up in you know these make believe horror films when his real life was sort of a diff entirely different type of horror story. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think that there were a, that they were a, a good escapism for him when he was working. That he was able to get into this make believe you know crazy stuff. Uh, as opposed to the, the the things that were really eating away at him uh, in his life, so yeah, it was quite a quite a journey, quite a you know, really quite a quite a saga there. Yeah. So the so the part of the irony when you were telling the story a little bit earlier, Greg, when you were taking that first photo of of Colin's house and you fell, uh, it yes. brought me right back. Just the irony of you know, of course, Colin in um, you know in high school or at the time going to the preparatory school. 
<clears throat> wanted to be in his mind, this great military, you know, follow with his, in his father's footsteps, the colonel, and fell off horseback and shattered his, I forget, maybe his left left knee, perhaps. Yes. It basically in that in that that moment, that quick moment, ended his entire military career. It did. Um, it did. And up to that point, I mean, he really, he was really, really going full charge ahead. Uh, he had gone to um, Stonyhurst, a preparatory school before he went to Sandhurst, which was the Royal Military Academy. And uh, one of the one of the uh, great things about the recent book was I was able to get in touch with the archivist uh, at his prep school. And, you know, from all those years ago, they had all these records uh, related to to uh, him mm-hmm. being there, uh, including photos of him on sports teams. He was a terrific athlete. He was yeah. a very good student. You know, he was really he, he really had this 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 dream, this goal uh, of, of, you know, honoring the family legacy and becoming this this great military man. And then, you know, as you say, basically within seconds, it all it all went away. It all shattered uh, yeah. the, the worst fall at Sandhurst uh, when he was there very early uh, uh, in his year there. And, um, you know, that that was that was it. So he had to, you know, he was um, he was in that frame of mind of, wow, what do I do with my life uh, when he drifted into the theater? What was his really introduction to the theater? I mean, why the theater? Why not get into something else? That's an excellent question. And it's it's really hard to say he had there was no background in the family for it. You know, there was none. Apparently, when he went to his father and said, I, "I'd like to be an actor," he expected, I think, this you know thunderous, you know, you've got to be out of your mind. Right. And his father said, "No, fine. You know, that's what you want to do. Then you know, by all means, go go for it." It, it can, kind of came out of nowhere. It was almost like he was destined that that was what he was supposed to be because he was so brilliant at it. And and the fact that here we are, all these years later, talking about him. Um, you know, it, it shows that that was really what, uh, you know, what he was intended to be, what, what God wanted him to be, what what he certainly was was cut out to be uh, professionally. Now, it, and it's interesting because you, you mentioned throughout the book, the, the high levels of stage fright he had throughout his whole career. Yes, it was something that it was it was a great split there. It's a very good point. He he he, he loved it from the point of view of of acting. Just something about it really attracted him. Maybe, again, it was this escapism, this this thing about being somebody else, this this uh, you know chance to, to jump in somebody else's skin uh, for a little while, but the thought of it, the thought of of actually going on stage at, at all, throughout his entire career, it never really mellowed out. The thought of it frightened him so much, gave him such terrible stage fright to the point that I mean I, I think he'd have been less frightened as a Bengal lancer, you know, oh, that, yeah. out, you know, out in yeah. the valleys of India, uh, you know, riding about uh, on duty and, and and facing the dangers there. Then he was somebody saying, all right, Mr. Clive, two minutes and you're on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that absolutely terrified him. So he had this sort of uh, very much a love-hate relationship with the acting profession. And, and, and very early in his career, he's quoted when he's still working in repertory um, at one point saying to another actor, you know, what, what a terrible, dreadful business this is. Uh, you know, that, that he obviously wasn't loving it. He, he it was something that he, that he just felt he had to do. Yes. And then when I think when directors and audiences and people said, well, you know, you're very good at it. Um, you should keep at it. You know, he felt compelled to do so. So um, I think he was probably very happy being an actor when the curtain came down. And the show was over. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And, and he was probably in a good mood for about another 12 hours until we started thinking about the next show the next night. Right. When it would become, then he would get the jitters and, and, and the stage fright and everything. It, it really was, it was as, as, as fine as he was, 
it's a shame that he never really came to peace with the uh, with with the stage fright because he was he was it was it was it was paralyzing it was a dreadful yeah. dreadful problem for that's him. and and you hear about so many great actors have that same issue Lawrence Olivier was famous for you know throwing up on off stage right before he went on to to perform yes. and stuff you know um I mean, yeah. I mean, really, one of my big takeaways from the the book, Greg, is is this idea that there there are different types of bravery, and obviously, there's a type of bravery where you're on horseback fighting, you know, somebody who's trying to kill you, and not to take anything away from that type of bravery because that is a specific type, of course. But there's also the bravery of um, standing up to the thing that scares you most, and you know, I I always. I'm behind the camera now as a career, but in high school, I, I, I performed on stage and, and I, I will tell you 30 years later, I still have the nightmare of walking on there and not knowing my lines and not knowing it's, it's, it is a, I always say it, if it's a phobia, it's, it's like arachnophobia where there are people that are deathly afraid of, of spiders to the point where it's paralyzing, but being afraid of a spider isn't exactly an illogical thing. I mean, it is a terrifying and potentially dangerous thing. And, and I think for anyone going on stage or speaking in front of people, it's, it's, it's one of the big fears that humans have. Yes. And it's just funny that, that he had it in such an extreme form and yet was compelled to to push through that. And obviously, you know, with the some assistance from the bottle, uh, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But um, but but also, you know, we talk about addictive personalities now, and I don't think that was really a term probably at, at the time back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think, you know, the applause of the 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 crowd and the the good reviews you get. At, you know, the morning after, after a performance, those are kind of addictive things too. And I can see yeah. how that he could, he could take that and use that as justification just enough to keep going to the next performance, the next performance, you know, yes. but then you see yeah. how, how, how devastating bad reviews would have been for him too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, very good. Very good point. I think that's, I think that's, that's an excellent point that, that, uh, you know, the, the rewards that the profession uh, gave him, you know, including eventually, uh, you know, the fame, mm-hmm. uh, the satisfaction that he had, you know, that he has succeeded in a, in a business uh, in which very few people succeed to the point that, at least during his lifetime, people, you know, know your name and, and, and right. go to see a play or a film because you're in it uh, sort of thing. And that he had, you know, he, he may have not achieved the dream he wanted of, of being the, the, the soldier, but he certainly achieved something else uh, that was at least as challenging uh, yeah. for him on many levels. So yeah, no, it's 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 a very interesting psychological thing there that went on with uh, with him and his. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, it's a really sad thing for me, and I didn't know quite in depth the details that you gave in, in the book here, Greg. But I mean, he I guess he knew the dangers of medicating himself with with whiskey specifically in order to overcome his his stage fright and fought it for it seemed like at least the first couple of years of his stage career. Until yes. and, and you, you correct me. I think it was once he finally got to maybe a journey, journey where his yeah. character was obviously an alcoholic, and yeah. this is when f- in fantasy and reality kind of merge. Is that and this is more of a question for you guys? Is that when he really started to experience more of the alcohol problems, like the 1930s? Yeah. Yes, it was. It was Journey's End because before that, uh, and, and and even to a large extent afterwards, uh, he was incredibly professional. As an actor, I mean, he was he was he approached the way he would approach being a soldier. Mm-hmm. Right. He had the same kind of discipline. And, um, you know, he would never drink uh, before a show or, or you know, and, and of course, uh, in, in the, the basic uh, idea in London theater was that once you started drinking, you were done. 
All right. I mean, if you were dependent on something else to get you through a show, then you weren't really in control of yourself anymore. And that your career was basically, you know, it was only a matter of time. He would have been only 28 years old. Well, he, so he would have been in the theater at that point for over nine years and had, again, stuck very closely to this, this regimented professionalism. When he got into Journey's End, what happened? Well, for one thing, he was it's kind of an interesting story. He was replacing Laurence Olivier, who had originated the part of Stanhope in, 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 in a tryout. All right. The play hadn't actually opened. It was like, like a tryout to attract backers in London to present the play. So they put the play on and they put it on with Laurence Olivier as Stanhope, who was this officer, who this captain who couldn't face war anymore without drinking. He had been a fine young man and he'd been, you know, all, all these noble idealistic things. But war had been so horrible that after seeing it for all this time on the front lines and everything, he could only get through it with, as he put it, doped with whiskey. Um, so Olivier played it. And also in the cast, interestingly enough, was an actor we all know and love named George Zuko. And George Zuko was playing the older officer who sort of takes care of Stanhope and, and a very, very fine part as well in, in the play. And so when they had this, this tryout, which, of course, incidentally, was directed by James Whale. So it was a very interesting you know, group of people um, in, in December of 1928. And uh, the, they did the play and it came time for the curtain call. George Zuko was getting all the applause. He was so good. He was basically, uh, you know, knocking Olivier out of the out of the spotlight, not on purpose. He just was such a fine actor and was so well suited to that role and, and, and was so good that he really was he was sort of it sort of become the star, although Stanhope was supposed to be the star. Well, of course, Olivier didn't take too well to this, and he um, took another offer. And so the part of Stanhope was open. Clive auditioned. Apparently, it was one of the great disastrous auditions of all time. He was terrified. He, you know, he walked around. He kept losing his place in the script. He kept smoking the whole time. He was just a complete nervous wreck. But James Whale, as we all know, what a brilliant mind and eye he had for casting. Mm. You know, he just was. And he looked at Clive and he said, yeah, you know, basically, I know he's a, you know, he's a, he's a train wreck up there right now. You know, if we can get him together, he will be absolutely dynamite in this part. So the rehearsal started and 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 Colin was very, very nervous, terrified. The other actors in the play, uh, George Zuko was still in it. And, and uh, you know, they he had to try to match his level and the other actors who all had been in this tryout. And um and he was just terrified, just absolutely terrified. Uh, at one point, he actually went to Whale and he said, look, I, I, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, I know this was a mistake to cast me. I'll go quietly. You can get somebody else. Uh, I know I'm terrible. Um, and Whale said, oh, no, 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 old boy, you can stay in there and, you know, you'll be fine. But I, I, I'm sure Whale was wondering, too, you know, what was going to happen here. So anyway, it was actually, and this is this is so strange. It was actually the, the playwrights. His name was R.C. Sheriff. Of course, another name horror fans know from right. Man, uh, great writer. R.C. Sheriff, who had written Journey's End, and R.C. Sheriff went. It was, was not a very worldly man. He was he was he, long story. But anyway, Sheriff went to to uh, to Colin and said um, at one point, "Look, look, why don't you go down to the pub uh, before the afternoon rehearsal and have one or two stiff drinks? It'll relax you. You come back here, you can be relaxed, and you know you, you'll, you'll be able to take a little bit of the edge off. Why don't you do it?" And and of course, Colin's first reaction was never. You know, I would never do a thing like that. No, 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 no truly professional actor would ever get near alcohol. You know, before a performance or a rehearsal. And uh, Sheriff said, "Oh no, no, we won't mind. By all means, you know, go ahead. I mean, you know." You need some help, fellow. You know, you better do something. Yeah. <laughs> so many words. So indeed, Colin went to the pub and had a 
two drinks, maybe three, and came back and he was brilliant at the rehearsal. All right. And everybody told him he was brilliant. And that really started it. So, yes, to answer your question, that's exactly when it came. And he got it in his head that he couldn't do this without the drinks. And it was this incredible, crazy mirror thing going on here, which in which you have Captain Stanhope, who feels he feels he can't go out to fight the war every day, every night without being, as he puts it, doped with whiskey. You have Colin Clive playing Captain Stanhope saying, I can't go out in front of an audience without having a few stiff drinks, you know, to fortify myself to be able to play this part. Right. So the play opened and he was a smash and this this kind of perverse thing mixed here where you had, you know, an, an actor who was becoming increasingly addicted, playing a character who was very addicted and uh, it it just was a disaster. And the strange thing is that R.C. Sheriff, who wrote about this years later in his book, I don't think he ever actually understood the problem that happened. I, I, he kind of thought, you see, I did the same thing. I told him to go, go off and get a couple of drinks and, you know, everything went fine. I don't think he ever equated, uh, you know, that the, 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 the damage that was done by that. Of course, he didn't, he obviously didn't intend it to go happen that way. Yeah. But um, I, I think that he either never, it didn't dawn on him or he had somehow put it out of his head. Yeah, he'd lit the fuse, right? Yeah, he lit the fuse. And, yeah. he really sure he, and just never understood Colin's demons either. You know, this yeah, it's like the, the fuse that he lit. And I guess, in, not I don't say his defense, but just the demons already, um, you know, with Clive and his, and his family that you almost you almost have to wonder, um, not to sound ignorant, but this almost sounds like it, this would have happened eventually anyways. Like there would have been another pipe bomb or another fuse lit, you know, probably just where he was such a fragile um, character, it seems. Yeah. Something else would have, you're right. Something else would have hit at some point because he was already carrying all this baggage. Uh, a so. young man. And um, so, so yeah, you're right. The bomb would have exploded eventually with one way or another. And um, either from a great success like Journey's End or from maybe too many years of not having any significant success, yeah. uh, he could have, you know, gone off the deep end. So, so, yeah, it was it probably, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because he certainly, you know, with with Journey's End, he became an overnight star in London. And it was, uh, you know, a very exciting time for him. Um, and um, one of the funny stories in the book that, that Stella Zuko told was she said that uh, not long after the play opened, that, that George Zuko had a party one night and um, uh, the, the, the cast of Journey's End uh, all attended. And that uh, Colin Clive was there, of course, and Tulu um, Bankhead was there, who, of course, was, you know, very uh, sensational character at the time. And uh, so was Jean de, Cass- Jean de Castles, who was the woman who Clive eventually married. And uh, they both went to this party and uh, were there. And um, Tallulah and uh, Jeannie uh, got into a catfight over who got to go home with Colin Clive that night, <laughs> So, um, which I'm sure was very flattering for him. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but, you know, he was having that kind of, uh, he was getting that kind of recognition. He was, he was a public figure. He, he I'm sure he was getting idolized and he was, uh, and so I'm sure he found that, uh, th- th- that level of it, uh, uh, very gratifying. So, so, uh, and of course he was playing a wonderful role, you know, I mean, it was a, the, the Stanhope was a terrific part. So even though he had to, had to go through what he went through to, to play it effect in his mind effectively, um, you know, it was a, it was a great showcase, and he was perfect for it. So, um, so he'd been very, very fortunate to have this, get this, get this role in this great play. And come, it, uh, it seems like that was that was his role. Like, yeah. you know, then you know, he comes to America, obviously, and 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 performs it in in the the well directed film version. Yeah. And it seems like while while probably 
the people who do know him know him best as as Henry Frankenstein, obviously. Uh, it's like Journey's End was his role. He felt he felt like that was his, like he he'd done it, he'd originated, he'd you know, and and I think he carried it with him um, and was so proud of it. You know, I don't know if he was as proud of the Frankenstein stuff. I think he was very proud of what he'd done with that one character and and you know, yes. to the end. Yeah, I think he thought uh, Journey's End almost had a certain uh, you know patriotic thing to yeah. it. Because- you know, it, it spoke to the to, to the people of England about what uh, you know a terrible tragedy their young men had to go through mm-hmm. fighting the war. So uh, he was very happy to epitomize that. It's interesting that when he made the film in 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 Hollywood of Journey's End, and of course Whale directed it, Whale insisted, of course, that that, that Colin Clive you know come from England to play it, and Clive was still in the play and uh, in in London, and in which he would basically you know uh, get a leave of absence from the play, take a ship from London, New York, get on a train in New York all the way to Hollywood. Uh, he would have like four weeks to make the movie and then he would have to get on the train, get back on the ship and had a certain date. He had to be back on stage in London in the play. So, of course, that was an enormous pressure. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting. I was thinking about this this morning, and that is that I've been so lucky, so blessed to have met so many wonderful people who, who worked in the business. And one of the very first interviews I ever had was in person was with the actor David Manners, who, of course, we all know from from Dracula and right. Black Cat and so on. And uh, uh, but of course, he had one of his best roles in Journey's End. And um, I remember speaking to him and that, you know, he, he, he was very it, it was very uh, hard for him. He said, you know, that really basically Colin Clive had sort of haunted him all his life because he said he was it, it was so sad. He again, he really was. He was Stanhope, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that he, he was uh, he was a, an actor who um, he said is he, he just, you know, he was he was so tormented and he was. Uh, as, as David Manner said, he was on the bottle most of the time. And uh, it was the only way at this point, the same way, the only way he could face a camera uh, was on the bottle. You know, it's just the only way he could face an audience was was on the bottle. So uh, he went in to make this film and he had all this pressure on him to get it done in a certain amount of time and, and to live up to all the expectations and so on and so forth. And um, he said that, you know, that that it was obvious to David Manners that Clive was such a, 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 a fine, gentle, sensitive man. And it was just a shame that he had this demon in him and, and had right. this, uh, this this alcoholism problem. Um, and that, uh, you know, it was very haunting for David Manners to remember that. It, it was a very, um, very sad memory for him. I was going to say, Greg, I think you mentioned in the book that, and I believe it was Manners who who said this, but he equated his alcoholism to a mask, right? And it's, yes. I think you mentioned it quite yes. a few times in the book that that was Clive's mask, that you very rarely did you get to see the, the skin, the real skin of Colin Clive was always with the mask on. Exactly. He said he wore this tragic mask is that jeered at his own sensitivity, at his own mm-hmm. softness. And he said everybody in the production, you know, they all wanted to help him because they knew, you know, that there was a, there was a great agony there. Uh, and they all wanted to help him, but that if anybody ever went up and tried to offer some kind of support or something, then, you know, the mask was on and he would yeah. jeer at them, you know, he would jeer at his own softness, his own sensitivity and uh, kept that mask on. So it's um, it, it, it's it's very, very sad. And you think this is the this is the very beginning of his film career. And he's already right you know, at this state. Um, it, it, it's almost amazing that he lasted another seven years. Um, when you think about it, because of the uh, the problems he was already having, which is so so strange, a guy who whose dream was to be in the military and that dream was squashed, then becomes known 
everywhere famous for playing someone in the military. I mean, the yes. that that's complicated to to process. Yeah. I think for especially for for a, a a soul that's kind of you know betwixt and between like like his and stuff. The the conflict there must have been really potent, right? Yeah, I would think so. I would yeah. think that, that again because he you know he he was uh, he was the wrong age to have fought in World War One. He would have been too young. Mm. And of course, he had the accident which kept him from actually being part of the service after that. Right. Uh, and yet he was winning, uh, uh, you know, his celebrity, really, his stardom as a as a man who, you know, uh, sacrificed everything in World War One. So. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it was on the back of that. And he's surrounded by people who served. He's surrounded by James Whale and George Zucco and stuff, you know, like, right. like people right. who really did, who did what he had dreamed to do. And stuff. it's, it's all very, it's all very Byronian, you know, it's very, yeah. so, so, you know, moving on from there. So, so after that, you know, James, James Whale does another film with, with Colin in it in between Journey's End and Frankenstein, right? Um, well, he did, let's see, James Whale did, he did, uh, he went to Universal and did Waterloo Bridge with right. Ray Clark. With May Clark, right, and then uh, and then came Frankenstein. Okay, with Clive, uh-huh. right? Okay, yeah. So One, yeah, so so that's interesting too. It's like Whale is assembling as a director. This fascinates me. Like like Whale is assembling his Frankenstein cast piece by piece. He's sort of putting it together, kind of like the monster, right? He's he works yes. with, with Clive, yeah. then he works with May Clark. Uh, you know, he works with Ernest Thesinger. You know, later on, and, and brings him into the fold in, in Bride and stuff. He assembles his cast the way the you know Frankenstein assembles the monster it's really neat i like that's that. very good yeah, yeah. it's a very very good analogy yes. well, they, yeah. the relationship between whale and Kaloff, i mean that's that could be a whole other episode in itself i mean that how fascinating is is their whole that yeah. whole dynamic starting yeah. with frankenstein and then of course old dark house ultimately when you get to bride of frankenstein with Kaloff is you know getting you know 200 2500 bucks a week and he's the, he's the star so whale now has to kind of handle him with with kid gloves right <laughs> that's right that's right he can't he can't uh, he can't bully him around anymore right he right have that incident like he did with you know making him carry clay over his shoulder up to the up the mountain you know, yeah, yeah, it was such, such a dark idea. Uh, uh, nearly broke Carlos back. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. Um, but, but yeah, he, he was. Um, you know, it's interesting that with all the um, all the casting stuff that went on with Frankenstein, that again, we all would have nobody else but Colin Clive. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and I like the way he put it. He said that you know he said he wanted him, and this is something that he had in the film with both Clive and and uh, Carlos. He said you know he wanted insane passion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a great, a great phrase. I love great choice of words. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and so, and you see that of course in the film, you, you know, that, that it with, with Clive, that he, as, as Henry Frankenstein, that he really does. He, he's so passionate. He's so into what he's doing. Uh, and he really kind of, he, he kind of takes you along. He almost, he almost seduces, you know, the viewer to, you know, come along with me on this horrible journey I'm, I'm yeah. taking. Uh, he's not at all repellent. You know, there's nothing about him that is a turn off. You know, he's not a, a ghoulish character or anything. Right. You know, he's a dreamer. And um, and he makes, you know, he when when he uh, when he, you know, screams it's alive. It's, you know, it's triumphant. And it's like, you know, wow, you know, this guy's a rock star. This is great. You know, <laughs> he did it, man. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Yeah. There, again, again, it's this this character that mirrors Clive himself. And, and and I think that's just a testament to the actor that he was able to inhabit his character so much with so much of himself. And, and you know, yes. but, um, you know, Henry Frankenstein is so compelled. He's driven. And, and in a way, he's got his own addiction, obviously, and his 
addiction is to to bring life to you know something that's never been alive before um Absolutely. so so it's not like it's almost like colin clive is getting he's already getting typecast right from the beginning and and it seems like throughout his career like you know it's it was people with different manias jealous husbands you know that yes. there was he could play any anybody as long as there was a certain amount of in, intensity to the character he, i don't think he could do i don't think he was hired a lot to do not intense he was he was hired no. to do intense no, even in something amusing yeah, he was yeah. hired to do a thing he, he had a role and and just just like a lot of actors and you know dwight fry or carla forever they were hired for a certain thing and, and clive had a thing he did and mm-hmm. it's that electric vibratory you know you know energy that he brings to to, to so many of the things he does yes absolutely you're right that intensity is what is that was his was his calling guard really uh and uh and it, it could work in sympathetic roles and it could work in very non-sympathetic roles. Well, one thing I, I learned from the, the book. So again, listeners, if you're listening in, we're talking Greg Manx, um, one man crazy, the life and death of Colin Clive, find it on Amazon, find it on uh, gregmank.com. We're certainly going to put up a few links, but one thing I had, I certainly learned from reading the book, Greg was not only how humble Clive was as an actor, you know, didn't want the, didn't want the spotlight, didn't want all the accolades, but at the same time, really, really seemed to relish um, a little bit of a playboy lifestyle. Love, you, know, you mentioned a couple of times, you'd have these one-on-one interviews with a seductive or, you know, a very pretty um, interviewer, a woman, and Clive yeah. would be, you know, flirting with her the whole time. Or it was kind of, I love that, that whole dynamic that on the, you know, one side he's a very much the humble gentleman, but at the same time, he's also a little bit of a, a little bit of a stray dog. Yeah. I think the, uh, <laughs> I think the film magazines realized that they wanted to get him to really talk for an interview. You know, they had to send uh, you know, again, a kind of seductive uh, interviewer over there to see him. And in that case, he would relax and open up and flirt and, and everything with her. Uh, if they sent a guy over, he would, you know, he could be in a good mood and maybe not, but you know, send a pretty right. good all over and now he'll, he'd show off a little bit. <laughs> that's smart that's really funny yeah definitely a bit of a ladies man it's interesting yes very um, much so yeah and um uh it's it's interesting that you know his um his first wife uh gene de Cassilis, uh was uh a, a great vamp of the uh she was some years older than he was a great vamp of the london stage very brilliant actress and and it did everything uh she, she could write and she could design and she did all these things yeah and um um uh she she really was a you know a great attraction in the London theater, and uh, but, but when he got to Hollywood and she she I don't think she ever came to Hollywood. I'm quite certain she never did. She was supposed to at one point, but didn't. And I think what happened is somebody tipped her off that you know he was not being entirely a good boy over there, and that yeah. he was you know, and that she probably wouldn't want to wouldn't like what she found if she came uh, to Hollywood to pay a visit. And uh, they were eventually became estranged. But um, he eventually became um, uh, quite quite involved with a uh, an, an actress showgirl named Iris Lancaster, who was uh, stunningly beautiful, you know, long legged redhead, and uh, uh, was a showgirl. And uh, you know, she had been flying down to Rio and films like such as that, mm. and um, uh, very lovely girl. And they had they had they had a kind of adventurous uh, relationship in Hollywood. And one of the things that was interesting is they both learned um, to. Uh, to, to fly a plane. And um, this might not sound entirely safe considering, you know, Colin's alcohol problem. Yeah, right. It seems. Hollywood and <laughs> flying in a of plane. All the occupations are tobies yeah. to have. But he decided he was going to go for it. He was going to, he was going to, you know, start flying. Uh, and, and, uh, and Iris decided that she would, she would also, uh, you know, learn to solo. And, and at one point she uh, apparently didn't tell him she went and she soloed one day, 
before he did. And so they had a big lover spat about that. You know, he, he was beat not happy. Yeah, she, <laughs> she, he was not happy about the fact that she uh, that she was uh, she soloed a day before he did. But um, but yeah, see, so he was, um, you know, he, he, he was he was a very uh, yeah, he was. He, 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 Rather play, as you said, Playboy lifestyle in Hollywood. Yeah. It's not a competitive was a- streak, too. You know, like like you said with 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 Iris, like you know, and and I think a lot of actors and showbiz folks, you know, that I work around have that too. And, and to a certain point, like being competitive is healthy. You know, it, it makes you push yourself and strive and you know try and get ahead and stuff. But but it does have that dark side too, where you see other people get the roles you wanted, and other people get the films you wanted to do. And, and, and that is another, it's just like everything tends to be an, a, a reason to indulge in bad habits as well. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's not, I mean, it sounded like, again, this is from my reading, uh, my take on the book, Greg, that if this was a true love affair, I mean, she, Iris took care of him. He was, it's not like she was his caregiver through his last couple of years in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was. She, uh, she, at the end, uh, in fact, they were, uh, from based on the records that I found, they were uh, cohabitating, you know, at the end of their life in that, that house I mentioned earlier up in the hills. Uh, and she did. She looked after him. She, took, she would take care of all the funeral arrangements uh, after his death. Um, I, 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 it was the relationship had its good points and, and maybe not so good points. I think she may have been um, a little ambitious on her own, but, you know, that's understandable. Most actresses would be right. I mean, that's not that wouldn't be any big shock. But, yeah, no, absolutely. She was there for him at the end. And uh, uh, and in his last years, and uh, she was she looked after him, took care of him, and and uh, it was there. It was interesting too. It sounded like she started billing herself. This is post after his death as Iris Clive. He did, which is kind of interesting. And uh, yeah, in fact, one of the uh, Universal films uh, that nobody ever seems to like or watch uh, are films. The last one, in fact, they ever made during that golden age era. Cat Creeps, uh, 1946, The Cat Creeps. She is in The Cat Creeps, and she is billed as Iris Clive. And uh, and she's very effective. She's the, you know, the kind of spooky, pretty lady with the cats uh, who, uh, you know, is in the house. And she's and so I always kind of wondered, I have no, no evidence of this, but I wonder if when she showed up to, uh, you know, to try out for the role, she said, well, you know, I used to be uh, involved with Cullen Clive. You know, right. Starting for you in Frankenstein. So, you know, you want to put that me in the a pool, bit. it'll be, a you know, a, a contact there. But but um, yeah, yeah, I would have well, like to- change, change your name almost like they, they changed Crane Chaney's name too. you know, adopting mm-hmm. adopting that that idea of like a legacy a little bit there or something. Mm-hmm. Um, did, uh, uh, Scott, we're definitely doing cat creeps at some point. Cause oh, of course, I, I, when, as soon as I read about that in Greg's book, I was like, I, I, I barely know about this film and it's not on our list. I don't think so. We're, we're adding that to the list. It, that's it for sure. certainly is. Absolutely. This, yeah, maybe this, this, uh, Halloween time we'll get that in there. Yeah. Stay tuned for cat creeps, everybody. Um, <laughs> it's better than its reputation says, put it that good. way. <laughs> good. We, we, we like the, I always say that we, we like the, uh, those, the fruit that's on the very edge of the branch of the tree of the universal horror, you know, like, uh-huh. Like we've, you know, oh, we've yeah. done, we've done, you know, man-made monster and house of horrors and we're doing horror islands and we like the obscure ones too. So, so we like Great. to pay tribute to those. They need our help to, you know, get the word out. Just, just like Colin Clive, just like what we're doing right now. Well, I've got to, okay. I just wanted to ask as, you know, as a filmmaker, it always fascinates me. We talk about these classic, you know, films and I, I on the podcast don't too much get into the directing usually because to me, the, the way the way directors directed films back then and the way directors direct films now is almost like apples and oranges. It's a very, you know, it's a very different medium now than it, than it used to be. It was such an assembly line process back then. And, and you only had rare glimmers of people like whale or Freund or, or, you know, Todd Browning and stuff that, that sort of broke out of that, 
you know, the kind of basic mode of coverage, the way you film things. Um, as far as Henry Frankenstein, you know, like I, I feel like Whale basically cast Colin Clive and just said, do Colin Clive. But, you know, you're Henry Frank, you know, with these lines and stuff. Like, do you, do you think, I'm just curious how, I wonder how much Henry Frankenstein was a construct between Whale and Clive. If, if there was a conversation, if Whale, you know, really oversaw that characterization or if he just let Colin go and said, no, that's about, that's why I cast you for this, you know? I, I think, I think it's more of the, of him letting him go. Yeah. Uh, because he, he wrote a letter to him that was published uh, in the New York Times, actually. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me. And he said to him, um, I know you're absolutely right for this role. You know, you, 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 he's, the character is, is um, a lot like Stanhope. Um, and, um, you know, that you, he has the same sort of intensity. Uh, he has the same sort of, of drive. He's, he has the same uh, sort of poetry to him. Um, you know, you, I, I think you're absolutely perfect for it. And I think then what, what uh, Will did, it's very interesting that what is something that is not in the original script that was added probably very, maybe even the day that the scene was shot, is that those marvelous lines that Clive has about him, you know, have you ever wanted to look beyond the clouds and the stars? Um, I think that, that Will saw to it that those lines went in because they're, they're Clive speaks them so beautifully Mm -hmm. and because they so fit his screen persona uh, and the Frankenstein persona that they were going for in that film. So, um, you know, along when it's alive, they're the, they're the the big lines that he has in the movie. And, you know, uh, you know, I wouldn't care if people said I was crazy, if I could find out one of those things. Um, So again, there's this, there's this, uh, this poetry and passion there. So I think that, yeah, I think we all figured that, 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 you know, that he, that, as with Stanhope, that you know, Clive had it, you know, in his heart. He had yeah. this characterization in his heart and soul, and that if he just kind of uh, hit the right buttons with him, mm-hmm. it would come out. Yeah. You know, he of course, turn turn him loose and get out of the way. Yeah, that's right. Let him loose and then boom, you know, yeah. be great. I look away from the explosion. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah. No, I think that's it. That's great. And I don't think, and I think Will knew Clive enough. Going back to what we said regarding his, um, you know, he wasn't seeking to be this this huge Hollywood star. That I think no. Will probably in his mind really had to, you know, again handle him with kick gloves and convince him like a father would, you know, could try, you know, almost hug his son to convince uh-huh. him to do something he doesn't want to do. Yeah. And knowing that, you know, Clive coming to to America or to Hollywood to be the star, you know, probably wasn't on maybe the top 10 list of things that Clive wanted or things were important to him. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think he, I think he came primarily for whale. I think he felt, you know, he owed it to him so he would come. But I think if he had his choice, he would have rather stayed in London and you know, done a play, uh, you know, at the time. Uh, but um, I, I don't think I don't think he had too much of an, an attraction to horror films themselves. And of course, you know, of course, with Frankenstein, it was more than just perhaps a horror film. It was a classic and of literature and all these things that he could have approached it from. But, um, but no, I, I, I think so. I think that, um, you know, that, that whale and, and, and Clive work so harmoniously together uh, mm-hmm. on all the things that they did and that, um, you know, that they, they trusted each other. And uh, it's a shame they didn't work more often. You know, it was, it was very interesting that after Frankenstein, that whale, you know, wanted Clive to be in the old dark house. Mm. He wanted him for the Melvin Douglas role uh, that was in there. And Clive would have been very good because apparently from reading the reviews of the work he did in London, he was very, very good in comedy. So yeah. he really played that role extremely well and, and had just the, that right kind of crazy quality that, that that's, fits the whole film. Uh, but uh, he was involved in, in something else in London, and, you know, wasn't available to come over to do it at that point. Um, and then, of course, he was later, we all later considered him for the Invisible Man. 
Um, but uh, I think Whale was very glad that he got Claude Rains instead. I mean, yeah, I think Clive yeah. would have been very, would have been very fine, but Brains, of course, is is perfect. And, and uh, absolutely. So um, you know, Whale. I mean, he, you know, yeah. Clive would have been a good second choice for him, but Brains was the yeah. was the number one boy for that. Clive. I mean, in those couple of years, Clive did an insane amount of going back and forth between England and, and Hollywood, which was not an easy trek at the time. You know, it's a it's a boat trip, which which uh, I remember you saying when he. He was on that tight schedule on Journey's End to get from the play in England to to do the film in L.A. and, and come back to England. Um, there was all this. It, it was on a tight itinerary and they weren't sure how long the boat would take. Sometimes boats took a, an extra day or a day or less or something, depending on the winds and tides and things. It was yeah. such a haphazard way to travel back then, not like now jumping on a jet. Um, yeah, yeah, and absolutely. for all that stuff, like, like that's a lot of traveling and that's a lot of, you know, you, you, it's like, it's like two or three days or, or more to get from England to, to, to Hollywood at that point. And then he gets there and it's like, here's your costume. Here's your, here's your stuff. Here's your, it's like, hold on right. a second. You know? That's right. If you fell one day behind somewhere in the travel, then they're behind schedule and, you yeah, know, it's so. rush, rush, rush. Yeah. I, I was surprised in putting the book together, how many candid shots I found of him actually uh, standing on ships. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, there's nothing else to do, right? <laughs> just a couple yeah, days of just. Where he was traveling back and forth from, <laughs> from uh, you know, from, from London to New York. Um, yeah. Yeah. He did a lot of, awful lot of traveling. So, I'm, actually, uh, I'm actually flipping through your book now, Greg. I'm trying to, there's a great shot of him on deck with a, um, with a, a very lovely lady. I'm trying to figure, I, I forget who it was, but it's, yeah, it's a great shot of, uh, of him returning to England, I believe. Yeah. He, he fell into the mold of celebrity rather well. I mean, I, I don't know if, you know, you, you see a lot of, over the last hundred years, a lot of people are destroyed by celebrity. Um, and and it, it goes on with the, the attention, fame, the lack of privacy, the lack of everything. And it's one thing that ironically, he seemed to, Clive seemed to to handle with a little bit of ease. He, he seemed to be enjoy being well-known. He enjoyed being, you know, you know, appreciated. Obviously he did enjoy the attention it got him, especially from the female variety. Um, even in the early on when they would, you know, ask him for interviews, he seemed, he seemed like really, really savvy about talking and not what not to say and what to say and stuff like that. So it, it seems like of all the, of all the demons that haunted him while he, while he, he obviously liked doing plays more than he liked doing movies, it, it seems um, the, the attention wasn't a, the pro, a problem for him. He, he was totally, and obviously the wealth and everything that came with it. He, he enjoyed that part of it, at least it seemed like, yeah. hey, you know, yeah. And with interviews, he said uh, one person, he, he said at one point, he said, when that's part of my job, yeah. you know, I, I, I'd be, I'd be neglecting my job if I didn't give an interview. I, I, this is this is part of my uh, this is part of the, the the job description. Right. When you're doing something like this, is that you're supposed to give interviews? So I would be, you know, I would be uh, negligent in in my uh, duty <laughs> if if I didn't, you know, speak to the press and. And, and do the things I was supposed to do. So it was, again, it was that, that soldier kind of thing. And, you know, the yeah, other yeah. thing that you mentioned along those same lines, which which I've noticed over the years, is that he obviously wasn't shy or reluctant about giving his autograph. Uh, his, his autograph is, is is I wouldn't say it's common, but uh, there are a lot of them out there, uh, particularly in, in uh, you know, uh, album books, you know, where somebody obviously saw him on the street or whatever and ran up and got him to mm-hmm. sign and apparently he was always very, you know, very nice and very gentlemanly about about giving his signature and, um, uh, you know, that uh, they, they, he was never, you know, standoffish or, or rude or any of these other things that, that yeah. people could be uh, at the time. He was, a, you know, he was always a, was always a, certainly in public, he was always a gentleman. 
And, yeah. and another, you know, another, so another fantastic photo from the book, Greg, is a one of, there's a playbill that somebody found. It was Clive's, his scripture was a little bit worn off, but there was a, a George Zucco and, uh, I forget the exact story, but it was, it was a playbill that somebody had found. Somebody, a grandmother had passed away. Or I forget the exact story, but basically they're going through somebody's um, items and found it was an old playbill that Clive had signed, George had signed. Yes, yes. yes it was, that was a funny story. That was uh, that was actually from Stella Zuko, George Zuko's widow. That's what it was, yes. And, and she had been, uh, she at that point was about 95 years old, and she had been uh, a victim of one of the earthquakes in L.A., and it mm-hmm. completely destroyed her apartment. She lived in Santa Monica, and, and uh, her apartment was completely destroyed. And, uh, you know, she went through her various stuff that she found. And one day I went out and I was amazed. I opened up the uh, the mailbox and there was this package. And uh, she said, I thought you'd like to have this. And it was. It was a it was a, a program from a special performance they had given of Journey's End. And, and everybody had signed it. Uh, the whole cast had signed it. And um, so um, I, I, I was stunned, you know. Mm-hmm. She had sent it to me, but she said, I know. That's all right, dear. I want you to have it. So, um, uh yeah, she was a wonderful lady, but uh, but uh, she she was not a particularly great fan of Clive. But uh, she, <laughs> she personally, for some reason, she, she just she just didn't uh, didn't think too much of him. But um, interesting, uh, yeah. But she, uh, but you know, she was very. Uh, uh, she thought he was great in Journey's End. You know, she thought he was a wonderful actor, but she right. just never warmed up to to them. Kind of right but, <laughs> That's funny. Um, not, not, not succumbing to his charms as so many other women. Um, that's right. Yeah. She, she, uh, yeah, she was, uh, she said, no, she did say that, you know, that he and George worked together perfectly well, you know, yeah. in the long run of journeys in together, they had great respect for each other and mm-hmm. they worked together fine, but, um, that's neat. A little suspicious of him for some reason. I guess she she made a lot of the same thing. She may have thought he was kind of a, a lady killer, and then you know she right. had, to, yeah, had to beware. Be but uh, <laughs> um, yeah. so so a couple of years later, we, now we we get towards uh, Bride of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. and and that that production seems to come together rather quickly, uh, as opposed to you know Frankenstein had the original Flory and, 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 and Lugosi originally going to be doing it. Then that falls apart. Then, you know, well comes on and, you know, there's the back forth about, is it Lugosi, Karloff, whatever. Um, by then, you know, it, by, by 34 or whatever, they're, they're putting together Bride of Frankenstein. Well, well, obviously is a very powerful force at universal. And, and it seems like what he, what he wants to some degree, he, he gets at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, uh, just fill us in a little bit, like, like, the, the the again assembling the the cast and and stuff and and how you know he brings colin back and stuff who colin was who was originally you know henry frankenstein was supposed to die at the end of the original frankenstein 31 and then they 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 shoot the you know the, the pickup there yeah yeah and then he of course was supposed to die in bride and they change it again um yeah. but um yes yes he wanted to we all wanted the whole the um you know as many of the original people as he could get a re- Going back to like 1933, when Karloff had the uh, had a dispute with Universal about salary, mm-hmm. and uh, Universal at that point decided they could not possibly make a Frankenstein sequel, of course, without Boris Karloff. You know, they had to get had to get Karloff back. So, and which, which they figure out later on that they can obviously they can do yeah. Frankenstein without Karloff, but not at this point. So they, woo, they do eventually woo him back in, but in the same uh, those the same reports in 1933, they're saying that um, you know that they absolutely want to get Karloff back and they want to get Colin Clive back. You know, they want to get those two those two stars right away. And it's interesting if you go through the the, the early scripts uh, that they put together for Bride of Frankenstein, the the um, the film was was originally much more structured uh, so that you know it was a story of 
of the monster and Henry Frankenstein. And then as it went through its various drafts, uh, it, it, it went in somewhat more different, somewhat you know, different directions. It, it, and of course, you know, the, the, the Dr. Pretorius character came in and, and this sort of thing. And, um, you know, you, you kind of think about the fact that, I, I think anyway, I'm guessing, I think that when Whale made Frankenstein, that he identified with uh, both Henry Frankenstein and with the monster. I think mm-hmm. he felt as a, as a former actor, you know, he would have enjoyed playing either one of those roles. All right. And he kind of pictured himself playing it, even though he was not in it and was directing right. it. I think in Bride of Frankenstein, he certainly pictured himself playing Dr. Pretorius. All right. He thought, you know, I, I would love to play that role, but, you know, this is. Yeah. That's the church, the guy for it. Um, so, of course, the, then the film, you know, spreads out and you get, uh, you know, you, get, you have, you have, uh, you have Dwight Fry, you have Uno O'Connor. And, of course, in the film, even Valerie Hobson as Elizabeth is, is you know, kind of crazy and and and, and uh, she's yeah. got, you know, she, she's she's hysterical. And, uh, you know, everybody in it is, um, is is kind of playing to the rafters, which is great. I mean, it's as part of the stylization of the movie. Um but it's, it's interesting that as that happened, uh, Clive's role became maybe not, I wouldn't say it became insignificant, but it became not, not as dominant as originally they were thinking of making it. And I think that it's interesting as a result what he does in the movie. I think that he's extremely um, grim. He's, as something we said a little while ago, he's like, he, he's like an addict. He's like an, a, a man addicted to blasphemy in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's got, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't have this poetic side, almost, almost doesn't have this poetic side that we saw in the original Frankenstein about thinking about the stars and the clouds. All right. He's he's very, he's very grim and he's very determined. And of course, by the time that he creates the female monster, we get those marvelous close-ups of him where he's, you know, staring up at the sky and he looks like a wild man. Um, so he took a different approach. And I think that that approach though, really does a lot to anchor the film. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a grimness there. There's a termination there. You know, there's the fact that there, there's no winking going on here with him as it is with some of the other characters. Yes. Um, and, and I think that does a, a, an invaluable service to the movie that, that somebody in there is, is, is playing it, you know, for real. I mean, again, they all are up to an extent. I mean, they, Carl's magnificent, and 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 I am even with. I mentioned Valerie Hobson a while ago. I mean, she's my favorite, uh, you know, uh, horror ingenue performance in Universal Films in, in that particular picture. Seventeen, was, think, 17 years old. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and she's just she's just remarkable. So, and and they're all remarkable. But um, you know, with Clive in his case, he is really playing it. You know, right down the middle, and and very very grim, very very determined. Uh, and um, it, it does a great amount for the movie to have him in there. So do you think Do you think Clive, I mean, obviously at this point, you can just see his facial features have changed, the ravages of alcoholism, and he, yeah. took, he took a fall. I don't know if it was during the early yeah. shooting of the film or just before, yes. fractured his hip. So do you think uh-huh. that had any, um, did that help d- dictate with Whale, maybe toning his, his role back just because he couldn't perform? Or you think it was the child before that? I don't think so. I think that I think that even if he may have been, you know, whatever his personal problems might have been, or his personal uh, you know, pain may have been physical, physical pain, emotional pain. Uh, I think he would have still given the best performance he could possibly give, and not try not to let that affect him. I think that what uh, 
<clears throat> I get the impression that what Clive thought was that this sort of the same thing that Karloff thought, which was that, well, this movie is getting really wonky. All right. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is really kind of going in some strange directions. <laughs> and um, I'll, of course, do what the director tells me to do. All right. And I, I don't have any choice, really. I mean, you know, but, I mean, of course, you know, Karloff, you know, tried to talk well out of the dialogue for the monster. But, you know, we all said, no, 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 we're going to mm. do it. And this sort of thing. And I think that they both kind of thought, wow, this is, you know, I hope this works. You know, right. because this is really going in some really crazy stylistic directions. So I hope this movie works. So what I think that uh, what Clive himself uh, was trying to do was to try to be as as realistic and gritty and and solid and and all these things as he could be while still being the so you know working up to the point where he, he screams out you know she's alive and with all the same right. verb that he had in the in the original film. So, um, but um, yeah, I think he's underrated. In Bride of Frankenstein, I think that, uh, and I think he's underrated because of the fact that he's not—he's uh, not giving the showboat performances that the others are. Not because they're, you know, we're trying necessarily to showboat, but because of the fact that they, they kind of got the impression that's what Will wanted. You know, he wanted them to be as big and yeah, crazy, outlandish. I mean, I mean, just like he hires Colin Clive to do a certain thing, he hires Uno O'Connor to do a certain thing, yes, exactly. and she's going to yeah, do it. And and, it. And, <laughs> and it's hard to it, when you're trying to do a very measured performance of something and you've got like like Ernest Dessinger and, and Uno Connor and people like that like playing playing in, in against you it's hard not to get overshadowed because they are big personalities they are they are <laughs> and you know what are you going to do I mean you either can get, try to be as big as they are and possibly yeah. make a you know, complete fool of yourself or you, or you can yeah. you know just try to really stay in the character that you're playing and, and yeah. do the best you can and and, and, and stay anchored where you are yeah. and he brings so, a he brings a for lack of a better term he brings a certain sobriety to the to the yes. film you know yeah you know, ironically it. enough yeah no it's interesting man. yeah yeah he plays it straight yeah Again, just to, to keep touting your book here, Greg. So again, One Man Crazy, The Life and Death of Colin Clive. So any horror fans, Bride of Frankenstein fans, and you know, we do, between Jim and I and our other partner, Olivia, with the podcast, we do a lot of deep diving and you know, photographs, rare photographs. But Greg, you've got a great one here of Clive. And we're not going to share it. You've got to go and buy the book if you want to see it. A great one of Clive on the set of Bride with a crutch, you know, yes. laid, laid up. I mean, I've, I've never, ever seen that before. Yeah. Yeah. He had had a fall on the set. And, uh, and I think the set, the shot is he's there with Valerie Hobson outside. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. He's uh, yeah. He, uh, um, and it's, it's a kind of a revealing shot. We won't say too much about it, but it, the, 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 the way he's kind of sitting with her is kind of interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> By the book, by the book, yeah, you'll, you'll see. Right. <laughs> One thing, just for years and years and years, I know you go into it with the book too, just fast forward to the very end of, of Clive's life. Obviously he passes in 37. Um, it's cremated. What is the story with with Clive's ashes, Greg? Oh, gee, it's such a long saga. <laughs> it's and, and, and there's no real definite uh, resolution, unfortunately, to what yeah. happened. Uh, what really, the real problem was, was that when he, at the time of his death, you mentioned Iris Lancaster, who had taken such good care of him. Uh, and who was, uh, you know, his, his lover. And we mentioned uh, Jean de Casalis, who was his um, wife in London. And so it was sort of a situation where the, it was, it was a, you know, he was caught between, if you will, the lover in Hollywood and the wife in London. Uh, and so um, what eventually I, I tried very hard to learn what happened. Um, at one point I wrote to the, uh, to the various authorities to try to learn and uh, what had occurred and um, got a letter back. And they said that in the late 1960s, that the, um, the uh, funeral home 
that had handled the arrangements had closed, been closed down by the state of California. And that at the time they found in the basement 300, as they called them, cremains, which were mm. based on boxes of ashes. And they said that um, uh, under the circumstances, because of what happened with, you know, because of the difficulty trying to trace back the families and this sort of thing, and there had been a fire at the funeral home, which had burned up some of the records and and so on and so forth, uh, that what happened was that these these ashes were eventually taken to the Los Angeles County crematorium grounds and uh, buried in a mass grave. And that it was possible, as they put it, that, that uh, Clive's ashes were among them. They gave me several other places to write to. I tried to follow up on this as, as much as my stamina would allow. Uh, and, um, you know, basically we get answers back saying, uh, we can't help you or we don't have those records, or yeah. they never did say yes or no. They just would kind of give you a, you know, a, a non-answer. Um, we, I, I know various people who are uh, experts in this kind of field. Um, Scott Wilson, for example, is, a, is, a, is an author who is, is an incredible knowledge of, 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 you know, where people are buried and so on and so forth. And, um, and he's been on the same track. And, uh, we never discovered any cemetery in London that has them, uh, no cemetery in California that has them. Um, so it is possible that what happened was that they were among those 300 uh, cremains that were eventually taken to the county crematorium grounds. But nobody's saying yes, nobody's saying no. Nobody's, yeah. no, it's, it, it, and it's poss- possibly because they really just don't know, possibly because they don't want to get into a mess with, you know, somebody saying, well, you know, how come this or how come that? Or, yes, of course. Or get a lawyer or something of that nature. Because if Clive so, is there, there's 299 other families who somebody has somebody there as well, obviously. Yeah. So, so, you know, it, it's a very, uh, it's a very strange thing. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about a crazy story. And that is that I, I went to that building one time in the various crazy research I've done over the years. Uh, which I'm not sure if it still exists now. It did. It was um, down on Venice Boulevard, um, and I, I went there. And uh, it was no longer a funeral home. It was a it was a, a neighborhood clinic and a PTA set a PTA center and and dental clinic. I believe it sat outside, and um, and it was a very impressive building. Still, it looked like a you know like a sort of southern mansion as, as yeah. a lot of funeral homes look like in those days. And um, so. I thought, well, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. I guess maybe I'll go in and maybe somebody there has something, some records or something I've never come across. So I walked in and I was not, I was not three steps in the door and an armed guard came out of nowhere. <laughs> kidding. Wow. He had a pistol. Wow. Wow. Holster. And uh, he came up and said, you know, basically state your business. And um, I told him, you know, who I was, what I was doing. And of course he had never heard of Colin Clive. Yeah. I said, well, you've heard of Frankenstein, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, he was the one. You've heard of Boris Karloff, right? And he said, yeah. No, yeah. And I said, well, he was the one in the movie way back in 1931 that created the monster. He said, oh, he created the monster. And I said, yeah. And he says, so he, and he was here, you know, when it was a funeral home. I said, yeah. I said, 1937. He said, 1937. <laughs> 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 it was like, you know, what are you, hunting dinosaurs or something? You yeah. know, you couldn't believe it was that it had gone back that far, but uh, but yeah, no, he was. Uh, they, it was a it, it was a neighborhood apparently had fallen into rather you know difficult times, and and they couldn't be too careful. Who yeah, wandered yeah. out of the building, and I wandered in, and man, he was ready for me. Yeah. Protect, protecting all the dental equipment. That's right. <laughs> Maybe everyone's after the nitrous oxide. Um, I mean, it is ironic that the Clive takes this one last secret to the grave so to speak you yes. know like the, the final disposition of his things 
Um, just I, yeah, the, tra- I, now I, the tragedy too, right? I mean, nobody, for, yeah. you know, just what, what, you know, I mean, obviously this man was loved. He had family, he had lovers, but nobody had the wherewithal to, you know, claim his remains as far as we know. Right. I mean, that's like with, the ultimate with no children with no ultimate yeah. sadness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's been a lot of crazy rumors and stories that I followed up on where people claimed, you know, that uh, this happened or that happened. But they all they all turned out just to be crazy stories. There's yeah. been no real documentation available as to what, what happened afterwards. Um, so um, so it's it's uh, yeah, I, I would imagine Iris Lancaster would have known. But uh, she died in, I believe, 2001. And I had I had tried very hard to find her. I figured, you know, she would have certainly would have had a lot of stories um, yeah. about him. But um, no, she had uh, she had you know, changed her name and uh, kind of gone. I don't know if she actually went into hiding, but she was she was not not findable. Interesting. Interesting. The private yeah. world. Um, and it's interesting because with a lot of so many people with associations to Golden Age Hollywood, you would and who, who kind of enjoy coming out and saying, you know, I knew so and so or I was. Yes of somebody or i was you know the girlfriend of so-and-so or something yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That, you know she could have come out and you know had a uh, certainly received a lot of attention certainly from us you know the three of right, us right right attention uh but she apparently decided you know no no that she never she never spoke out publicly in those later years about, about that was it interesting interesting well he he obviously lives on uh in in everyone's imaginations and minds and and in, in their dvd bookshelves right Yes. I mean, that's the legacy of, of someone like him and stuff. And it's, it's, and, and, and as someone also, I mean, who I don't think there's ever has been another Colin Clive or ever will be. He, he had a, he had a thing he did that was unique that, that, you know, you can imitate, but never totally replicate. I think, I mean, there was, he was just, he was, he was, he was the, he was the thing and an integral part of so many of these things that we all enjoy, but you know, but is it yeah. the voice, the voice like a pipe organ? I always love that. Yeah. yeah. We all said about him, a voice like a pipe organ. Yeah, yeah it, it, it is. It's wonderful. He really, <clears throat> he really, excuse me, he really gave, you know, in Frankenstein, he really gave an incandescent performance. I mean, it's, it's unusual to think again, um, that when you would approach a film like that, you would expect to be scared. And of course, people were very, very scared when they saw the film back in 1931. But, um, you know, for, for us watching it today and who've seen it so many times and that sort of thing, uh, you know, like I say, he's 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 so he's so brilliant in the role and mm-hmm. and, and has such uh, that, that sort of Byronic glamour in the yes. role. And, uh, you know, he kind of makes us love Henry Frankenstein the same way Karloff kind of makes us love the monster. Uh, and, you know, by all rights, we're not supposed to love Frankenstein or the monster, you know, uh, right. this sort of thing. But. But the, the the personality and the talent of 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 these men and of course in Wales direction and so on and so forth, you know, they, they were just so awesome that they kind of pulled off this crazy miracle with that yeah. movie. Yeah. To to stand up as in a performance as as a normal sized normal man, to stand up to Karloff in his in his makeup, to stand up to that giant vertiginous, you know, creation laboratory set. Yeah. And, and to give a performance that that sizes up to that kind of spectacle is gotta be uh, how many people could do that? I don't know. And he really does do that. He, he owns that space. It's just incredible. That's absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Kind of reminds me of like Claude. I mean, I always say like with Claude Rains for such a small man, man, he takes up a lot of space on that screen. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, Clive, Clive, the same thing. So yeah, this is, this is such a fascinating talk. Greg, thanks so much for doing this. This is great. And if you're ever out in LA, please let's, let's meet up. Look at, look at some places. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take I'll take up the class. <laughs> yeah. That'd be, Oh, that'd be great. Climb the hill where the rattlesnakes are. That's right. That's right. I'll, I'll keep a lookout for rattlesnakes. That sounds good. We'll bring yeah. our sleds. We can just slide That's there. Right. <laughs> 
So Greg, obviously we've been talking a lot about your book, uh, One Man Crazy, The Life and Death of, of Colin Clive. So listeners, get out there and, and, and pick this one up. It's a great read, amazing yeah. photographs you're not going to see anywhere. And anything else, um, Greg, before we um, say goodbye, anything, any other projects you're working on or anything that you know, you'd like to share with Jim and I and the listeners? Uh, yes, actually, I have a new book coming out uh, this fall and uh, it's called Angels and Ministers of Grace, Protect Us. And um, it's uh, with a quote from Hamlet. And uh, it's about, it's 13, actually, essays on 13 horror films. It's a sort of a follow-up to the book I did a few years ago, The Very Witching Time of Night, which also was a Shakespearean line. Oh, cool. And um, so there are 13 different essays uh, in there, all different uh, horror, horror films. And um, I also, in fact, uh, and watch for this at the end of the year, hopefully this will all come together. Uh, I've written two novels with a Hollywood background which I believe are coming out. And one of them deals significantly with 1931 in Hollywood. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So uh, the, the gentleman we talked about today is a very dynamic figure uh, in, in oh, boy. history. So um, I've had a lot of fun writing it uh, and, and hopefully, um, uh, you know, did him justice uh, in the, in the story. I think he, uh, I hope he would be pleased. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a wild story. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of a horror mystery story uh, with a, with this 1931 Hollywood background and uh, set against uh, things that were happening at that point in Hollywood in 1931. So, uh, so yeah, it'll be coming out hopefully soon. And uh, I will definitely keep you posted on those. Hundred awesome. percent. We'd love to. Yeah, if you want to come back on and you know, we talk the book, or certainly, yeah, keep in touch. We'd love to share. You know, anything you're working on, uh, Greg. This has been such such a pleasure, and can't thank you enough for your time and expertise and your years and years of um, you know keeping this this genre alive. And you know, hopefully, Jim and I, you know, and our tiny little piece, we're doing the same thing and just trying to keep, you know, keep the ball moving for the next generation. And we've got the 20 somethings right behind us. Hopefully they'll pick up the mantle and, you know, mm-hmm. keep this thing alive for another hundred years. Yeah. Well, you guys are doing a great job with Puerto Pass. So keep it up and thank you very much for having me on. I've enjoyed it immensely and hope we can do it again soon. Me too. Thanks, Greg. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. And listeners, thank you again. Always list turning into the Bogo Pass Horror Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode, but the fun does not stop here. You can follow and interact with the show's hosts and listeners online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Borgo Pass Horror Podcast is a presentation of Shadow Camera Film and Entertainment. This episode was edited by Livio Marino. The music was composed by Sean Gould. Opening and closing narration are by me, Kat Herons. Show titles and graphics created by Jim Towns. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Podcast.